0: So, for the next couple of weeks, we'll see uh, how long uh, it takes to get through this uh, series. No rush. But what we're going to do is uh, visit some of the the lies that uh, the world and uh, even our own hearts at times are prone to tell us and even tempt us with, and so... We're going to look at those and and come away with a biblical perspective as to <clears throat> what we should believe. And as we'll read here together in just a moment, the truth that these particular lies often conceal, the truth that they often conceal. So uh, that's where we're going in our study of God's word this morning. So let's go ahead and ask his blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that Again, here we are, another Sunday in your house with you, and uh, that's a good thing, as we learned just this past Thursday that this is one of those uh, discretionary loyalties, one of those things that uh, we choose to do with our lives, and uh, through that, uh, we lay up treasures in heaven Father, we pray as we again now open your word and we learn from your word that that would cause us also to identify other areas in our life where we can do that, where we can lay up treasures in heaven. Make it so we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, uh, direct your eyes to the top of the handout there, follow along as I read. Safely navigating our souls to shores of heaven requires we spy the lies that lead to shipwreck and the truth, those lies often conceal. So again, that's what we're going to do here for the next couple of weeks is identify some of those Various lies that, as I said, the world and even our hearts at times tempt us with. Here's the first. You don't have what it takes to live for God and get to heaven. You don't have what it takes to live for God and get to heaven. I have talked with a few of you about this particular lie you have shared with me. How your own heart at times has uh, attempted to discourage you in this way. That maybe you don't have what it takes. That you can't live the Christian life. You can't do it. And uh, as a result of that. Uh, your eternal Uh, resting place will not be heaven, uh, heaven, rather it will be an eternal torturing place. The eternal torturing place of hell. And again, that because as this lie tells you, you can't do it. And when I say you, I mean again, Christians. Christian, you don't have what it takes to live for God and get to heaven. Well, how do we know that that's a Lie. Well, first of all, by considering that God, his ability to judge everyone according to their deeds and to be just in that judgment or righteous in that judgment versus unrighteous requires that we have. The ability, and uh, when I say we now, I mean all human beings, including the unsaved or the non-Christian, that all human beings, because all human beings will be judged. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 makes that clear. Everyone who has ever lived will be judged, both the righteous and the wicked. For God to be able to do that requires that we have the ability to obey his laws. And you'll see a, a phrase that I put in there that uh, uh, communicates this. Culpability necessitates ability. Culpability, uh, a term that just refers to a responsibility or that we are responsible for what we do. In other words, we're not victims Culpability, it is necessary to culpability that those individuals who are culpable, who are responsible, that they possess the ability to do uh, what they are now being judged for. Culpability necessitates ability. And and you know the passage, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 16, the passage that... uh, It tells us that we can, that all human beings can, obey God's law. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 16, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Now, mind you, I understand that uh, Moses here, or God, is speaking to the old covenant community and so you might say well uh, it's not too hard for again believers but in a moment here just keep this in mind uh, we're going to see that basically what the Israelites had as far as help to obey God was no different internally internally than any other human being on the planet that means including the pagans There was really no advantage internally uh, for the Old Testament uh, believer. And so again, with that in mind, God's words. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. It's not too hard. Uh, Neither is it afar off. And there would be the distinction between uh, the Old Testament believer or the Jews uh, and the pagan outside. Though it is not too hard in relation to all people, pagans included, God's word or the knowledge of it was far off for the pagan. They did not know God's word. But again, that didn't mean they didn't have the ability to obey it. It is not too hard for you. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. And again, here now speaking specifically to the Old Testament believer or the Jew, it wasn't in heaven. They had God's word. Moses is here now speaking that very word to them. It was not far off. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And uh, this is why uh, years ago that after being a Calvinist for many, many, many years, uh, I rejected that position, understanding it to be unbiblical. And uh, it is unbiblical at its very beginnings. And if you know anything about Calvinism, you know that uh, it is uh, dependent on that first point. Every point, in other words, that follows is dependent on that first uh, point, which is uh, uh, called total depravity. And uh, what that particular point or doctrine teaches is that uh, man is unable to obey God's law. Uh, well, Deuteronomy 30 makes that pretty clear that that's not true. We are able to obey God's law. And just because the Bible, as we're going to see here in just a second as it relates to uh, the Old Testament believer or the Jew, even though that uh, there were certain things there that made uh, their ability to obey God's law Uh, different than our ability uh, ability to obey God's law, uh, meaning that we have an advantage that they didn't have, even though that is the case, and the terms that are used sometimes to uh, describe that that, uh, deficiency uh, are terms like bondage or sold into slavery or enslavement, that doesn't mean, again, that they couldn't do it. Deuteronomy 30 makes that clear, again, in verse 11 and in verse 14. It is not too hard for you, verse sixteen or verse fourteen, rather again. You can do it. You can do it. And that again is necessary for God to be just or righteous in judging us. And again, here is where the uh, Calvinistic position on this total depravity uh, falls apart. If you ever uh, have the uh, the privilege of speaking with a Calvinist. Uh, the first thing you want to do is ask them, does God's word teach that we will be judged according to our deeds? And uh, if they've taken any time at all to read their Bibles, they know that we will be judged according to our deeds. As a matter of fact, that's the one thing that is uh, common in both the old and the new over and over and over again as it relates to God in his relationship to mankind is that uh, The common point is that, uh, or the commonality that we share with every other human being in our relationship to God is that we will all be repaid according to our deeds. And so over and over we're told that. Both the righteous and the wicked will be repaid according to their deeds. We will be judged according to our deeds. Well, uh, for God to be able to do that and be just in doing that requires that we have the ability to do the things that he requires. So again, culpability necessitates ability. If I have no legs, it would be unjust for God to require me to run a 40-yard dash. I must have the ability to do it. Otherwise, what is being required of me is unjust, and that is... Uh, As I've said, that is the position of the Calvinist. That is, uh, that first doctrine within that, uh, as they call it, string of pearls, uh, which are fully dependent, and that's the reason they call it a string, is because as a a string of pearls, they're all connected to each other. Uh, If you don't have the first, it all falls apart. And that first point falls apart. Total depravity is totally wrong. We have the ability All human beings, in this respect, have the ability to obey God's laws. Hence the reason God will be just or righteous to judge them when they fail. More, however, than anyone else... I'm in now 1.2 in your notes. More than anyone else in human history, however, we as Christians have less of an excuse and more potential to live for God. More than anyone else. Don't miss that. In human history, we have less of an excuse, uh, no excuse, and even uh, more so uh, because of the potential that we've been given. Where has that potential been given? In our baptism, in our baptism, two things uh, took place in our baptism. Uh, Number one, we died to sin through the death of our king. And we're going to look at that here in a second. We died to sin through the death of our king. Well, what am I referring to? By that, just something symbolic that uh, we say to ourselves: we we have died to sin. Well, according to what uh, Paul does say in Romans six one through seven, uh, there is a sense in which we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. But it's not just something that we uh, that we consider or the perspective now that we adopt in relation to sin. Something very real, a real death in other words, in relation to sin, took place in our baptism. Namely, Jesus, his propitiatory sacrifice, not penal sacrifice, and not Passover sacrifice. We're going to talk about the Passover piece here in a second, in contrast to the idea of propitiatory. Uh, but his propitiatory uh, sacrifice was applied to us. And here we find the, uh, the real death aspect to our dying with Christ in our baptism. And here also we find then the definition for propitiation. Here is what propitiation sacrifice does. It brings real death to sin in the soul. Death to sin in the soul and its enslaving power in the soul. And the soul piece, and uh, this is the reason I keep emphasizing it, that is the key piece here or the key distinction. We have, as we're going to see, sin in our flesh. And then there is also sin in the soul. God's wrath is always against those who continue to have sin in their soul. Maybe a better way of thinking about that is a corrupted soul. No corrupted souls get to heaven. And as we know, the only way that God will give you uh, that kind of cleansing, the only way that God will uh, allow you to have what kills that sin in the soul and its enslaving power is if you do the work of justice. If you do the penal portion in repentance, God will offer to you, Through the death of his son, which provided that, which accomplished that, propitiation. Which is death to sin and the power of sin in the soul. That's propitiation. And that is uh, what Paul again is speaking to in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. And with that in mind, consider how Paul begins here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is here, of course, speaking to a Christian audience, the church in Rome. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin? I think considering everything that we've already said, and if you're thinking of that and you're, uh, you're plugging that in here to this particular question, uh, you can understand why Paul then responds the way he does. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you understand propitiation... For if we've been united with him him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because here's what we know. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The body of sin... Might be brought to nothing. How? Because we're no longer enslaved to sin. For the one who has died with Christ in his death. His death, in other words, being applied to us. Has been set free from sin. And so again, that's what propitiation does. That kind of sacrifice, Christ's. Sacrifice does. It kills sin in the soul. And by killing sin in the soul, it removes the power of sin from the soul. We are no longer enslaved to sin. To be enslaved to sin just means that the power of sin, because sin is still alive in your soul, the power of sin is still there. In the deepest part of who we are, our souls. And so Paul takes what he says here, expands upon that, and then juxtaposes that understanding, propitiation, or what we received in our baptism and what that means as it relates to sin in the soul. He now takes that and and contrasts that with... The Old Testament believer. And here now we're going to see uh, what I was talking about in Deuteronomy 30 uh, verses 11 through, uh, through 14 there. Uh, this disadvantage that they had in comparison to what we now have. Uh, what made them essentially uh, no different internally as it related to dealing with sin. Romans chapter 7. So picking it up then. In chapter 7, he says this, Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. Here now, uh, I believe what he's doing is uh, uh, indicating his uh, audience to be the Jews in that uh, particular uh, covenant community. Those who know the law. And by that term law, there, uh, he's not talking about the commandments. We're going to see uh, the distinction with that here in just a second. But uh, this particular term being used to identify the old covenant, it was sometimes referred to as the law covenant, whereas the new covenant is sometimes referred to as the grace covenant. He does that in uh, the previous chapter when he says things like this You are no longer under law, but under grace, verse 14. You are no longer under, in other words, the law covenant. You are under the grace covenant. Uh, Both of these uh, terms or uh, this understanding of law and grace this way can be picked up in places like John chapter uh, 1. I believe it's uh, verse uh, 17 uh, where we're told that uh, through Moses came the law. Hence the reason it's identified as the law covenant. That was uh, uh, that particular covenant's contribution to redemptive history. Through Christ, through the new covenant came grace, that's the uh, the additional contribution that's made to redemption and grace, just referring to uh, the fact that uh, in scope it's now been opened up uh, to uh, the Gentile or the pagans, not just the Jews, and also now this advantage that comes uh, through this distinction of propitiation versus what they had, the only thing they had, which was Passover sacrifice. And we're going to Talk a little bit about that or a little bit more here in just a second. But again, Paul here now making the, the contrast or wanting to uh, make the distinction between what he has said about uh, the new covenant believer, those under the grace covenant, and why that is an advantageous position to have versus those who were at one time only under the law covenant, those who know the law, the Jews that the law or the law covenant is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Do you not know that? That covenant is only binding, he says. And notice here, interesting, isn't it? Verse 2, he identifies that covenant or uses a marriage as his support. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And they're again using this term to uh, refer to the covenant. She's released from the covenant, right? That term law is not referring to the laws that govern a marriage. But the covenant that she was in with that uh, that former person or her former husband. And so here picking up again what he uh, starts with in 6 about dying and now applying it to marriage. Once your spouse dies, you are free to marry another. That's where he's going. Verse 3, accordingly she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law or that covenant. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law or that covenant through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to a different covenant to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by that former covenant, the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And he's going to tell us why that is the case here in just a second, but he's he's telling us now that was what it was like over there in that covenant. We were in the flesh our sinful passions were uh, not being muted or suppressed by that covenant, but instead were at work in our members. But now we are released from that covenant, the law covenant, the old covenant, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And as we're going to see here, uh, that's the additional peace or advantageous peace that we are given, that gives us that advantage in living for God, and uh, gives us less of an excuse for not living for God. We've been released from that, and we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Again, referring to the former covenant. What then shall we say? That the law, meaning the law of covenant, is sin by no means... Yet if it had not been for the law, that covenant, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said that covenant. What do we find in it? Laws, that's why it's referred to as the law covenant, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, the laws themselves within that covenant, produced in me all kinds of covetousness from apart from the law covenant, sin is or lies dead or is not active, I was once alive apart from the law of covenant, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised me life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law of covenant, and anytime you speak about the covenant, you're speaking about everything in it, which would include those commands, of course. So the law covenant is holy and the commandment, The very laws that make up that law covenant. Here you see the distinction that you know that that word law is referring to something other than the commandments, which is why he has both there. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul poses the question, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin. Paul himself being a Jew, speaking of his former experience under that covenant, It was sin producing death in me through what was good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law, the law covenant is spiritual. But here's the problem as it related to that covenant. I am of the flesh. He's already told us that. He told us that earlier. Verse 5, for while living in the flesh. I am of the flesh, sold under sin or still in bondage to sin. There was no advantage in that covenant. Though it was possible, though I had the ability, Paul says, to obey. We know that Deuteronomy 30. He's not denying that or negating that. The problem was there was no help because sin and the power of sin was still very much alive in my soul. Skip down to verse 24, Wretched man that I am. 15 through 23, he just uh, unpacks that a little bit more. And then responds by saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Where am I going to get help? My body is bombarding me. The sin that resides there. But I've got two problems. It's not just in my body. It's in my, it's in my soul. And he responds back to his uh, query there in verse 24 with these words. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear now the contrast. Through his propitiatory sacrifice. That's what he's thanking God in relation to Jesus for. So then, as a result of Jesus, so then, under his covenant, applying his sacrifice, dying with him in his death, through my baptism, so then I myself serve now the law of God with my mind, literally with my soul. My soul has been freed. You have been set free from sin. Isn't that what he said back in Romans 6? I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's still there in the flesh. It still resides in my flesh, but my soul has finally been set free. Some believe that uh, Paul words, uh, Paul's words, rather, up there in uh, verse 24, is a reference or an allusion to uh, something that would take place or was known to have taken place as it related to uh, murderers in his hometown. And that was that uh, if you were found guilty of murder, they would attach the corpse to your body. They would tie the corpse of the uh, person that you had murdered to your body. And they would uh, make you walk around with it until its infection, until its disease seeped into you. And that Paul is uh, alluding to uh, his body in that way. Who will free me from this, my soul, the me, the real me, the person inside From sin. And in that way, from this body of death that I am nonetheless in this life condemned to continue to carry. And Paul again says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. My soul has been set free. With my soul I serve now God. Even though I continue in this body to serve the law of sin. Meaning this, my body serves it. Sin still resides in my flesh and tempts me to serve it. Continuing on, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because condemnation comes from God. God's wrath comes as long as there's still corruption or sin in the soul. That's now been removed. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. There again, the law of covenant. Because of its sacrifice not being propitiatory, it could not do. Remember, sacrifices were a part of that law system. It could not do. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Literally, he broke the power of sin. And so putting that all together then, you'll see here in your notes, or direct your eyes then back down to the notes, 1.2 there, In about the middle of those notes, right after the 8, 1 through 3, here's a summary of what we just read. Because the Old Covenant was Passover only, and more than just a summary, I guess, a little bit more explanation. Because it was Passover only, meaning the sacrifices that were done for the people's sin was not propitiatory, but Passover only, the way to think of that Passover, you remember uh, the day or the, uh, uh, the holiday known as Passover where God passed over, literally over their sins, which uh, was reminiscent of what took place in Egypt where when they put the blood on the lintels and the angel of death passed over and did not strike the firstborn in the home. That God has now taken that and all of that was just uh, symbols or signs pointing to this very thing. That God, under that old covenant, would pass over their sin. That's not dealing with sin. That is instead uh, what we call uh, a stay of execution. Passover sacrifice meant God was giving them a stay of execution until proper propitiation could be made. And uh, if you put your finger in here real quick in Romans, and uh, you go back uh, to Romans 3, because we're not done there in uh, that portion of Romans, but Romans 3, at 25, you'll see this. Speaking about Christ, it says, "...whom God put forward as a propitiation." By his blood. And that's now you know where I'm getting that term from. And why I'm plugging it in then uh, to uh, what we are reading in 6 and in 7. He wants us to do that. He's given us this data for that very reason. So that when we go to uh, those particular passages. We understand uh, these kinds of distinctions. What distinction? Well propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because. Because. In his divine forbearance, his patience, he had in the previous times, he had passed over former sins. You see it? Both words then. Propitiation, and then that phrase, passed over. God forbearing, waiting. But notice again, he says, this was to show God's righteousness because, because why? God must, God must, deal with sin or see that sin is dealt with. And so uh, that uh, temporary stay of execution was only for so long. At some point, uh, that sin in the soul needed to be dealt with. And there's only uh, two ways that it can be dealt with, either through propitiation, which removes it and its power, or in hell forever, which ultimately doesn't remove it. Hell is not a place that you go so that uh, you can have uh, that sin removed, it's the place that people go who do not have it removed. It's the place of corrupted souls who must remain there so that they do not corrupt God's new and perfect universe. And so again, this is uh, the difference between the two. Because uh, the old covenant was Passover only... Summary and explanation of what we've just read. Sin and its power remained in the soul. That's what Paul is speaking to then in Romans 7. And ultimately trying to convince his Jewish audience of the benefits of the old versus the new. Paul says under the old we we didn't have what we have now under the new. Because of Christ. Him being the only one worthy. The only one who could make Propitiation. So that power, because of sin in the soul, remained. What did that mean? Well, it meant, though living for God was doable, it was extremely difficult. And that is, then, what Paul is speaking to in verses 15 through uh, 23, uh, that I did not read. Verse 20, for example, Now if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This evil there, that's there, that makes it so hard and difficult. But then Jesus came. But then Jesus came and made propitiation. Which means what? Well, what the old timers used to say, or this is the way they used to say it. Here's what he did, or, what, or how they say it though sin is still resident in the flesh it is no longer president in your soul though sin is still resident in the flesh remember as paul says there in verse 25 my flesh still wants to serve the law of sin that's why we will not take these bodies with us they die with everything else corrupted by sin but here's the good news Unlike the, the people under the old covenant, or during that time, whether they were under the covenant or not, a sin is only resident in the flesh, no longer in the soul. It no longer reigns as president there, and to have sin in your soul means it is ultimately president, a president or reigning in your life. Hence the reason that uh, Paul can speak of people in that way as being enslaved to sin. And so there's the first benefit that leaves us without excuse as believers and tells us that this kind of a statement, you don't have what it takes to live for God, uh, is a lie. If you are a Christian, you have propitiation, which means that that sin at your baptism was removed from your soul. And the power of sin then has also been removed from your soul. Yes, it resides still in your flesh, but no longer in your soul. And that gives you an incredible advantage. It gives you an incredible advantage. And adding to that, then we also have, and through our baptism we're given, we were born again by the Holy Spirit who now abides with us as an empowering helper in our efforts to fulfill God's laws and refuse the sinful desires still residing in our flesh. So we've got propitiation and we've got new birth and with that new birth comes the Holy Spirit as helper. He doesn't do the work for us, but he helps us to beat sin in the flesh Picking it back up where we left off in chapter 8, verse 4, notice after saying what God has done by the Spirit in sending His Son, He says this, here was the purpose or uh, the, the purpose for doing it. They're picking up in uh, verse 2, this indication of the Spirit that comes in that, in order then, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Obedience to God's law. Who walk, who live, in other words, not according to the flesh. Sin's still there. It still attempts to tempt us or to draw us back. But we don't walk anymore according to that. We're not enslaved in our souls in that way anymore. And now we have a friend. Now we have a helper who walk not according to the flesh then, but according to that helper, according to the spirit. Verses 12 and 13 then, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, if you go that way, you will die, meaning eternally. That danger or threat is still there if you make the choice to follow your flesh, your feelings. But if by the Spirit, this new helper, this empowering helper, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will die. Live. And so two big helps that the Christian has. The potential that we've been given to live for God is greater than anyone ever before. We have both propitiation. Sin no longer resides in my soul. Its power is no longer there. And I now have the helper... The Helper of the Holy Spirit, who was uh, beforehand not able to come because or take up residence in us because of the sin in our soul. One point three, the aforementioned divine power, I believe uh, Peter in Second Peter one three is a. Uh, is putting these two things together when he says uh, divine power there, but the aforementioned divine power along with the knowledge or renewing of the mind that happens when we change our thinking to match what is in God's word gives us everything we need to live for God and get to heaven. And again, that is uh, 2 Peter uh, verse uh, 1, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power. Divine power that is removed Sin from our soul, divine power that is through that given us the Holy Spirit, caused us to be born again. That divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Notice that other piece. Which means we don't just get those things in our baptism and then we're good, but those things are ultimately realized, that divine power. The divine power that, uh, that broke the power of sin in our soul. The divine power that gives to us the Holy Spirit as a helper. Uh, those things are realized. That divine power is realized through the knowledge of Him. Who called us to His own glory and excellence. And pairing this up with what we find in Romans, again, Romans chapter 12, where Paul says that you are now, in light of these incredible things that you've been given, in light of these incredible advantages that you have been given, you are to offer up your life as a living sacrifice, as your spiritual worship to God in this way. You are to renew your mind. No longer being uh, transformed or, excuse me, conformed to this world. No longer listening to your flesh or the flesh of this world or the spirits of this world. But transformed through the renewing of your mind. And so through uh, these two things, again, notice uh, Peter says, we have everything or all things that pertain to life and godliness. You are truly, Peter is saying, without excuse. No one can say, no Christian, none of you here who have been baptized can say, I don't have what it takes. That's a lie. That's a lie. Notice... uh, by the way, based on what I said, and uh, if, you looked up the, uh, if you bothered to look up the Romans 12, uh, verse 2 passage, uh, it is not optional. Renewing your, not, your mind is not optional, uh, which means this. Uh, when you hear from God's Word something that is different from what you think, believe, or practice, you are expected to change that thing. The above reasons then are why Peter warns that those Christians who allow themselves to be caught back up into sin and once more corrupt their souls will be in a spiritual state worse than they were before they were saved. Going back to the Romans text, remember he says, if you, if you give in to the deeds of the flesh, if you listen to the flesh, you don't need to do that. But if you do that, you will die And according to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, there are individuals who will do that. And as a result, they will again be enslaved to sin. And what he says again about those people is that uh, their their new state will be worse than what it was before they were saved, their former state. Notice he says there in chapter 2 verse uh, starting in Verse 20, for if after they, speaking of Christians, those who have received all of these advantages, now possessing uncorrupted souls with the power to do the right things to fulfill God's law, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, those are the things that we need to do that, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, here again, the knowledge piece being the the way that we realize those particular advantages, which is why we need to always be in His Word. If after they have escaped the defilements, through these things they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Which tells us it's possible This is as much of a warning as it is anything else, education as to how this can happen, but also a warning that if you're not careful, it will happen. Your state becomes worse for, notice verse 21, what he has to say about that, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is why he says it's become worse. It would have been better. Based on what's awaiting them in eternity... The Bible teaches that there are different places in hell, levels, something. There are portions of it that are worse than others. And uh, what Peter seems to be saying here is that for those people that came in and had all the advantages, none of the excuses, they were set up for success. And they despise those things. Where they're going is going to be worse, and hence the reason he says it would have been better for them to never have known both are going to hell, right? The one who never knew is going to hell, but he says here, better to be that person than the other, which tells us that very thing. There's something even worse or a, 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 an even worse part of hell that these kinds of people will reside in. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow, in the mire. This is uh, uh, very much akin to what we read in Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews, chapter ten. I believe it's verse uh, twenty-nine. I think you have it here in your notes, uh, verse twenty-nine. Yes, where he says, "How much more severe punishment these kinds of people who continue to sin, who go back into their sin after being delivered from their sin." Sin removed from the soul. And the only person that can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why his name, Acts 4.12, is the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. He's the only one that can do that. And to turn back and to re-corrupt your soul. How much more severe punishment, that's what the writer of Hebrews says, will be deserved by such people. Who have trampled underfoot the Son of God, who have treated as an unclean thing the blood by which they were sanctified, who have enraged the Spirit, this advantageous friend, helper. And they have enraged that Spirit of grace that was given to them. Jesus' words, to whom much is given, then much will be required. Beloved, you're a Christian. You've been given much. Much more so than anyone you read in the Old Testament, much. And because of that, God requires and expects much in return. You'll see there I put, as the last little consideration, equipped for success. We've all been equipped for success. If you've been baptized, you've been equipped for success. God gave you at the very beginning everything you needed to succeed You've been equipped for success, and that means then he expects no less. No excuses. So, the truth then that lies, or that this lie often conceals, the truth that this lie often conceals, well, not that uh, you don't have what it takes to live for God, that's the lie. That lie is concealing this truth, what the real issue is. you don't want to do what it takes to get to heaven. not that you don't have it, you see the difference, not that you don't have it it 's that you don 't want to do what it takes luke thirteen twenty four this is uh, that portion that uh, should be familiar to you we've talked about it many times over the years where the man comes to Jesus and says. Are there only a few who are going to be saved? And Jesus tells him to agonize, to enter through the narrow gate, because many will want to but not be able. And I'm so grateful that Jesus uses those kinds of words. uh, They want to. Because it removes that uh, from the equation. As we're asking the question, why can't they get in? Why are they not going to heaven? It has nothing to do with want. It has everything to do with: Are you willing to do what it takes? The wanting's not the issue. That seems to be the message today, and has been for some time now. Uh, so-called Christians think that anybody who wants to go to heaven, God, uh, God says they'll go to heaven, and so uh, that's why it's uh, been now just uh, uh, boiled down to a little prayer. Or discounted, rather, down to just some little prayer that tells God that, yeah, I'm making my reservation in heaven. And it's not about want. It's always been about do. Yeah, you should want to go, but uh, that's not going to get you there. It's the do, and for the Christian, you've been given everything you need to do just that. But are you willing to do what it takes? Some final things to consider as it relates to this first point, Hebrews 12, as it relates to what it takes, there in that uh, chapter, the writer says that uh, you need to consider this, you have not resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. And so until you've done that, don't complain, because you've done nothing. You put no effort into it until you've done that. And I think that goes very nicely with what Jesus says over and over and over throughout his earthly ministry about gouging out the eye and cutting off the hand. Mark 9. This particular statement comes up again and uh, this time he couples it with hell itself. Gouging out the eye and cutting off the hand means you, you, you take whatever measures are necessary. Whatever measures are necessary to guarantee success. You know, the world understands this, and uh, we're going to uh, cut it short here today because uh, I've run out of time. Just promise me you will not look at the the next two, and God knows. <laughs> All right? So <laughs> just the first one. <clears throat> but it's interesting, as I was saying, that uh, even the world the world understands this as it relates to success. And uh, here now, of course, not speaking about <clears throat> eternal things but to to just show you the parallel the world understands that the the people that are successful uh, are successful because they 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 make sure they guarantee success by the things that they do in their lives if you're the kind of person that uh, always has an excuse as to why you're late to work then you're the kind of person that doesn't know what it means to guarantee success you say, well, I've got this going on or that going on or this may happen or that may not happen. Well, if you're the person that guarantees success, you're the person that says, because those things may happen, I'm going to get up an extra hour or two hours early. You say, well, I want to do the right thing, but I'm always forgetting things. Thank God God gave you a phone that you can put notes and reminders in. You see, that's what the successful person does and always has. You guarantee Success. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, cut off the hand and gouge out the eye. You make sure to go to the extreme in the little things, by the way, to make sure that you're going to get there. You remove all obstacles, going back to Hebrews 12. The the things that, uh, as the writer says, so easily entangle us. We do have advantages. We have more potential than anybody else. We have the least, or we are among the least as it relates to excuses. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still obstacles there. Pitfalls that will take you to hell. And it's up to us to use what we've been given. We have been, again, equipped for success. And to take that, and to be careful, and to guarantee that we get to heaven and last but not least, that we never, ever, 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 ever entertain the lie that we don't have what it takes. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we were able to discuss a very important issue. No doubt for people who are Christians, there have been times, especially during trials, where this kind of a lie has Propped up into their heads. You don't have what it takes. This morning we have experienced renewing through your mind. You have given to us the understanding that tells us that that is indeed a lie. We do have what it takes, we have propitiation. Our souls are clean from sin. You have removed its enslaving power from our souls. And you've been so loving to give to us also a helper, a divine helper. The Holy Spirit, I pray that we never despise these things. This equipping that you've given to us. And through that renewal that we would make it, that understanding that we received here, that we would truly be transformed we would make it a part of our lives. Make it so as we go, in Jesus' name.